Hi there, I'm Peter. And I'm Garvey. And welcome to the Tech Bowl Podcast, where we journal journalists and give a behind-the-scenes look at the America's media machine. For our first episode, we're excited to interview photojournalist David Grunfeld. In 2005, his newsroom was awarded the team Pulitzer for his coverage of Hurricane Katrina. But, David, would you care to introduce yourself as well? Sure. Garvey and uh, Peter, thank you for having me this morning. I'm David Grunfeld, Director of Photography at the Times-Picayune, New Orleans Advocate, and NOLA.com. Thank you very much. All right, so, David, could you care to just give a little bit of information on your uh, journalism background, what kind of what got you into it? Sure. Well, being as old as I am, I have had about 35 years of experience. Started in the eighth grade, believe it or not. I was interested in photography. Uh, a cousin of mine is uh, a New York Times magnum photographer, Michal Bar-Am, who influenced me as a child. And I was just curious about how to tell stories. Even at that age, I, I, I had no idea actually how to go about it. So um, through my cousin's influence by looking at his photographs and talking with him, and also joining the National Press Photographers Association, also known as the MPPA, as a student, I uh, started to really delve into how to make pictures that tell stories. And the best way to do that is I, I uh, discovered a mentor. There was a gentleman by the name of John Metzger, who I actually never met, but I loved his work. And he worked for a newspaper not far from my hometown. He worked for the Ithaca Journal. And I grew up in a small town in upstate New York, uh, Marathon, New York, population one red light. Um, <laughs> and I uh, just looked at his work. And, and, uh, and I said to myself, if John Metzger is making these pictures in Ithaca, I can do it in my hometown, which was only maybe 25 miles away. And the best way for me to do that I thought at the time was just to look critically at his work and try to emulate what he saw. Um, and that really was the, the beginning of my foundation of trying to translate what I saw in life through my camera onto film and then into a print. And one of the things I learned early on was that cameras don't make great pictures. People do. And the camera is really, truly only an extension of the way we think. And that's all it is. It doesn't matter whether it's an iPhone today or a 4x5 camera. Um, all it, all that the camera is is an extension of how we think. And so you went to Syracuse, you attended Syracuse, and then how did you come down to New Orleans from there? So one of the reasons why I got into photography was because I was a, a poor student with math and science and so instead of focusing on the things that I wasn't good at, I focused on photography, which I thought I could possibly become good at. And uh, there's this old expression, you know, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? I'm in New York City, I'm lost, and I need to get to Carnegie Hall. So you stop and ask somebody, and some old wise man would say, the only way you get to Carnegie Hall is practice, practice, practice. And to this day, I am still a student of photography. And I'm constantly trying to figure out better ways to tell stories through experimentation, through getting to know people outside of my own community, by reading. And, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, especially photojournalism, it's cultural and visual anthropology. And each photograph is really a moment in time will never be captured again because it was that moment in time. 
Um, so what I try to do is uh, I try to stay fresh in my thought process, try to not be safe. I try to shoot for myself, not other editors. And I try to maintain a positive attitude. Attitude is, I think, 90% of what any of us do. If we have a good attitude about something and we keep our eyes and our minds open to new things, we will always stay fresh and we will always be uh, you know, a student of whatever our craft may be. So this is how I got started. So in the eighth grade, as I said before, you know, I, I was interested in photography. I surrounded myself with people who I thought could help me, whether I knew them personally or not. Uh, so I went to Syracuse University. I had terrific professors. They opened my, my mind even more. Uh, critical thinking, critical thinking, critical seeing, experimentation. Failure is the best part of success. If you don't fail, you're never going to succeed because if you don't fail, that means you're not trying. So I think the most important opportunity I had at Syracuse University was working at the Daily Orange, which is the student newspaper. And then I got an internship, which changed my life, catapulted my career. I was surrounded by a staff of uh, seasoned photojournalists at the Syracuse newspapers. And I basically learned through osmosis by observing, asking questions, and failing. And that was, I would say, to anybody who wants to get a, a job in any profession, internships are vital at moving your career forward. What I, I have to finish, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I have a long, long career, and it's tough to, yeah. to I don't want to give you a blow-by-blow. Blow. So anyway, so this is in a nutshell. So I get an internship, I hone my craft. After school, I get a job at the Syracuse newspaper. Uh, I'm young, I'm naive, I'm energetic. My energy level was like through the roof. From the full-time job, I had this opportunity six weeks into my job to go work for the Jamaica Tourist Board on the island yeah. of Jamaica. And of course I asked uh, for a leave of absence and they laughed at me. So silly me, I quit. And uh, I don't think I had silly, a beautiful though. job, beautiful opportunities, and I just quit and I worked for the Jamaica Tourist Board for a little while and came back and had to get a job again. And I'm sure the people at the Syracuse newspapers, I know Mr. Elliot, he was not happy with me, but anyway, I wanna, Ultimately, I, I worked for Cornell University School of the Vet School, and then I got a full-time job at the uh, Auburn Citizen, which was a small daily newspaper outside of Syracuse. Had a terrific career there. I uh, was able to actually hone my belief system through the support of the publisher and the managing editor. And this is not my term, but somebody, you know... Uh, I put, the, uh, I put the little newspaper on the map photographically. We won, won all kinds of awards. We were doing terrific community journalism. It was 35 miles north of Ithaca, where if John Metzger was doing it in Ithaca, I could do it in Auburn. And those were all the, the factors that kept motivating me. So ultimately, I wound up getting a job back at the Syracuse newspapers. I was there for a few years, and the, the people that own... Uh, the Syracuse newspapers also own the Times-Picayune. They asked me if, because one of the things 
that I do really well is community journalism. Now, community journalism isn't just your chicken dinner at the Methodist Church, but it's really getting to understand your community on all levels, the good, bad, and the ugly. They like that here at, at the Times-Picayune. One of the, one of the, uh, the foundations of the Times-Picayune was saturating the community with good community journalism. And they like my philosophy, so they hired me. And so I've been here since 1993 doing community journalism. A pivotal point visually in not just my career, but in, in the careers of all photojournalists at the Times-Picayune clearly was Hurricane Katrina. We all were forced out of our comfort zone. We were all forced out of, well, we've always done it that way, um, <laughs> which always drove me crazy because that would, that's like people going to work and it's safe and, you know, but why don't we try something new and fresh? Well, Katrina did that for all of us, not just for the photographers, but for the way editors and reporters and the direction of the newspaper. I don't know exactly how long it was, but the word Hurricane Katrina appeared in the newspaper every single day for well over a year and a half, and maybe even two, two years. Okay. And somebody made a note that, wow, this is the first day that we hadn't had the word Hurricane Katrina in the newspaper. And it, and it showed you how far and resilient not just our newsroom was at the time, but about the community. So, I mean, Katrina really was the largest shift in my career. My photographs got a little edgier. We, we didn't whitewash things. Our, our policy, our reporting, and our visuals clearly helped shape policy politically and in government. And I think we all recognize the value of uh, that's great community journalism. Katrina, believe it or not, was uh, the dawning of NOLA.com in the sense that we had hundreds of thousands of our readers that were evacuated, but they still wanted their time Picayune. And it was a dawning of NOLA.com because our readers were scattered all over the country, but they still wanted their local newspaper. And they got it through NOLA.com. And your newsroom at the time was um, affected by Hurricane Katrina, right? Could you, would you care to just give a brief like explanation of what happened to the Times-Picayune building? The, the newspaper itself didn't flood, but we were surrounded by water. And uh, the news, newsroom had to evacuate for mostly safety reasons. And, of course, there was no electricity. We couldn't really produce a newspaper there anymore, so... We started producing a newspaper a few days later after we reorganized, but in Baton Rouge and in Homa, the thirst for news and images was extraordinary. And, and that was a dawning for us of the, the digital age. You know, and for me, I wound up being the embedded photographer when the president came to visit several times. And the first time they handed me my White House credential, it said David Grunfeld, NOLA.com. It didn't mention anything about the Times-Picayune. That's when I, I also realized the value of our content in a digital space. First, how did the first day of Katrina like play out for you in a play-by-play? -play? And then in addition, like as a working journalist at the time, who or which outlet broke the news to you first? Or where did you hear about it first? Well, we all knew that Katrina was coming. It, it was, you know, it's a slow crescendo, so to speak. 
a week out, three days out, coming to New Orleans. Maybe it's going to go east. Maybe it's going to go west. Maybe we're going to get a direct hit. We just didn't know. So it wasn't a surprise. What was a surprise is that Katrina did veer to the east a little bit into Purlington, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Eastern New Orleans was the westernmost part of the eyewall. But the hurricane itself was just to the east in New Orleans. But what was a surprise was James O'Byrne and Doug McCash, after the storm passed, they decided to venture out and go check on their homes, and they started seeing water in places that there shouldn't have been water. And we slowly learned that the levees broke. And then in the city, after the storm passed, started filling up with water. Did you notice a difference in smell after the levee broke in the city? Oh, yeah, there was clearly... Uh, there were definitely all kinds of smells. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, and, it, and it got worse for a long time. The, after the water was pumped out, the, the mud and the sediment started drying and things started rotting. People's homes were, you know, just there was black mold everywhere. But a few days after Katrina, I was scheduled to go to, if, if the storm passed to the east, James Varney, a reporter, and I, we were assigned to go to the Mississippi coast uh, the day of Katrina, storm passed about two o'clock in the afternoon. Got in our car and we started heading east. We were in, we were out of the city. We were stationed in Covington, so we have an easy shot to get to the Gulf Coast. And we stopped in Slidell, and we realized there was no need to go to Mississippi Gulf Coast. Parts of Slidell were underwater. The I-10 was underwater. So we started reporting what we saw that was in front of us at the time. And the interesting thing about that was the only form of communication was listening to WWL radio and they were trying to get people to call in and nobody was calling in and that was weird and uh, we now know why pretty much things were underwater and we you know we all just started reporting so what happened that day was uh, James and I we had a story and photos we called the photo desk in New Orleans and nobody answered cell phones weren't working later in the day we figured it out you mentioned things being underwater and the smell and things rotting. And what was it like to walk through puddles and just bodies of water without knowing what's underneath? It wasn't puddles. It was feet of water. <laughs> well, you, you use boats. And, you know, great journalists are people who are resourceful. Day two of Katrina, we figured out how to get into the city, trying to get to the Lower Ninth Ward. And there were parts of the city by the river was, which was not underwater. 80% of the city was underwater, but not what we call the sliver by the river. Um, and we're able to, knowing the city, we're able to navigate. So I got I got to the St. Claude Bridge and I, at the corner of Poland and St. Claude, it was like an encampment of people who were forced out of the Lower Ninth Ward. So I walked over the St. Claude Bridge and it was, obviously it was, the water was to the rooftops and I just waited thinking that I'd jump on a boat. Maybe people are out rescuing. So sure enough, the boat came along, and somebody let me in the boat, and off we went into the Lower Ninth Ward trying to rescue people. Did you guys divide the newsroom into, like, specific sections of the city to go and cover, or, like, how did you... No, we were all on our own. All on your own, okay. um, At that point, uh, all the organization that we had was off. We were all just out there trying to report what we saw in front of us. Um, and, I, and, and that was a frustrating part because... We always felt like we weren't in the right spot. 
And the AP, I ran into an AP photographer, his name's Eric Gay, who came in from Texas to cover the storm. And he said, don't worry about it, guys. Just report what's in front of you. That's all, that's all you know. You know, cell phones weren't working. We're, we're beginning to dabble in text, text messaging. We didn't know what the hell text messaging was. <laughs> we learned from uh, one of the uh, reporters, 15-year-old kids, saying, hey, Dad, you know, you can text each other. And we are like, texting? What is texting? Right? So we learned a lot as we went along. In the aftermath of Katrina, there was journalists that weren't from here that kind of portrayed the city as lawless. And I just wanted to kind of get your interpretation of some of that. Well, when there, when there's an event like Katrina, yeah, there was a sense of lawlessness. So I, I photographed people looting stores. Uh, John McCusker was out in front of the Walmart and actually had police officers looting DVDs. And it was just, yeah. it was an awful time for so many people. A lot of people weren't thinking straight. And what, I came across a moment on Canal Street, and there were these guys that looted a flat-screen TV from a store. And it was interesting, like, what are you going to do with a flat-screen TV walking through water? There's no electricity. <laughs> and so the police officers basically told the guys, just drop the TV in the water. You know, don't loot. Some people were looting for... I suppose survival, there were people taking food and toilet paper and yeah, there was a sense of lawlessness. Yeah. One of the interesting things about being the local newspaper, whenever we came across people, we have such a strong connection with the community, people wanted to tell us their stories. And, and looters, I was photographing looters and they were like, okay, I think we just got busted by the newspaper. Over time, the military came in and assisted the NOPD, and, you know, the lawlessness kind of went away after about a week or so. I'm not exactly sure of the timeline, but a fellow colleague at the newspaper allowed us to stay at their house out in Metairie, and I was working with a fellow picking photographer, Ted Jackson, and a Getty photographer, Chris Grayson, and we always try to work in pairs or more just for our own safety. And we wound up at this house in Metairie, which didn't flood, they had electricity, so which means they had air conditioning. And at this point, it was five or six days into covering without a shower, and we stayed at the Windsor Court one night. We were trying to find a place to stay, and so we went out to this house that was offered to us in Metairie, and we had to break in. So we broke in through a back window. The person said, just be aware of a guy by the name of Al. He is a retired police officer, NOPD police officer, and he's probably keeping track of the neighborhood. Well, so Chris and Ted were out front getting stuff out of the car, and I came through the window and opened up the front door, and I was greeted by the, the end of a barrel of a 12-gauge shotgun. And by this time, Ted and Chris are on the ground. We've all been there. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then I realized, I said, are you Al? And sure enough, that was Al. I met Al. When I said his name, the situation was completely diffused. And he did say, he says, you have no idea how close we were. He thought we were looters. And everything worked out in the end there. But uh, that was a very tense moment. There were stories that I found that said journalists were 
restricted at times by military and officers. Did you come across any of that when covering? Right after Katrina, there were basically no laws for a few days and we could move freely or as best we could considering the water situation. Mm -hmm. I actually found the police, EMS, military were quite nice to us. And I, and I, I do teach, uh, you know, I'm a, an adjunct professor here at Loyola, and I do teach the students that no means yes. And I don't mean no means yes in the sense that you, you should do anything, but I encourage them not to get arrested. Smart, smart. <laughs> the no means yes attitude is that we're journalists, we have to get our story, no matter what. So we get a lot of no's, but we still have to get the story. So I wouldn't dwell much on that. It's just yeah. it's part of the job. A lot of times the police are looking out for our safety. A lot of times we'll come to a crime scene and we inadvertently are walking through evidence and we don't know it. Yeah. I think it's interesting getting it your side because a lot of the stories that I found that came up on Google first, st stories written from people that weren't from here, that weren't around here at the time. And I don't know, they might have been a little bit more invasive. I well, know. I mean, whenever you have an, an event like Katrina, you're going to have people come in and cover the event. Yeah. I mean, that's a given. We were the Times-Picayune and we had local credibility. People knew that we were part of our community. We're one of them. Many people at the Times Picayune lost everything, but they still went to work. So I think being the local newspaper and the reputation that we earned was beneficial to us. Did other journalists come to you guys and ask you guys for help and like sources and stuff like that since you guys were kind of the authority in the local area? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, people reached out to us. And conversely, you know, people reached out to us to let them know that they're there to help us. We lost our newsroom. We, we, lost our, we lost our home base, and journalists all over the country offered whatever they could do. The White House photographers, on one of their trips, brought in a, a portable water purification system for me. <laughs> Real nice gesture. So, um, yeah. I mean, in the end, you know, we're all humans, and I think humanity was shown at its finest within our careers, you know, okay. from other professional journalists. You kind of described how Katrina kind of jump-started NOLA.com. How has it changed? As we all know now, right, we all walk around with a newspaper in our pocket. People have an insatiable appetite to know what's going on, and they want to know now. They don't want to wait till tomorrow, yeah. right? We are all pushing out news alerts constantly throughout the day and the evening and the night. So news never rests, and it's always in our pocket, and we can be as informed as we want to be. So, yeah, I mean, the, the dawning of digital journalism clearly for us was NOLA.com, and, and we've come a long way since 2005. Oh, yeah. The workflow seems like it shifted also as well as you move from film to digital photography, and do you think that's been better now that we, things are more digital and everything's more accessible, or do you think it's kind of a race to the bottom for the industry? No, I think the industry is just shifting, and it always will be now because technology keeps shifting, and people come up with better ways and new ideas and faster and quicker. And but but the core, but the the core hasn't changed, which is accurate, truthful storytelling, visuals, video. The truth still remains our foundation. That has not changed, and 
technology should not and will, and I believe will not change our foundation, which is just truthfulness. Thank you so much, David. Well, I I appreciate you having me and uh, thank you for letting me share some of my stories. And, you know, just just, uh, as a note, 2005 to 2020 is a long time. So telling you the my stories to the best of my recollection that happened to me. I, I wish I never had to experience Katrina, but it, it definitely uh, has given me the opportunity to, to be a stronger and better journalist. I appreciate you having me on. Yes, Thank you. This is Peter Buffo and Garvey for the podcasting class, and this is David Gunfeld, the esteemed. Thank you very much, and thanks for tuning in. We're out. <laughs>